We come now to the principle of demonstration, and like all the others, they're very obvious. But sometimes because they are so obvious, we may not really give them the attention they deserve. They all flow together, but this is part of the whole package. For as these disciples followed Christ, they were constantly seeing a demonstration of what it meant to minister. Not in theory, but in practice. He was showing them how to become a minister of God. And this was reflected not just in his teaching and his compassion to the multitudes. It was the overflow of his personal communion with the Father. So it's not surprising how often the focus is on prayer. He is practicing it before the disciples all the time. When it says he went to the mountain, it's in the plural tense, which means it's a practice. It's something that continues. One time we were told he had been up on the mountain early that morning, I guess, or maybe had been up there all night. But the next morning when he came down the mountain, the disciples knew what he had been doing up there. And they came up to him and said, Master, would you teach us to pray? It's interesting. They'd been saying prayers all their life. They grew up in the synagogue where this was a part of the service, reading prayers or hear someone else read the prayer. But there was something about the way Jesus prayed they wanted to learn. It was different because he had spoken so often about how prayer was the communion with God and how in that communion we could ask what we will in his name and the, the Father would answer. Astounding. And so Jesus said, all right, after this way you can pray. He lifted his eyes toward heaven and he began to say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. You hear him pray? And those disciples staying around, listening intently to every word. Now, that prayer is not repeated in the Gospels again, except perhaps on one other occasion. The inference is that Jesus did not have to go over again and again this first prayer that he showed them so that they learned how to pray themselves. They didn't have to be prompted. But in the beginning, notice how he actually put the words in their mouth. He didn't give them a lecture on prayer. He gave them an example. And I suspect if we could trace back your very first prayers, probably they would resemble much the prayer that you had heard someone else pray, maybe your mother or father or pastor or someone else. Because we learn most naturally by demonstration. We imitate what we hear. 
And that's the way Jesus is teaching, modeling before them a lifestyle of prayer, teaching the disciples above all else, prayer is going to be your greatest strength and support. You remember how he told them to pray to the Lord of the harvest? Really, this is the first inkling of the Great Commission in the teaching of Christ. We begin in prayer. We begin on our knees. We begin in that expression of a total dependence upon God because prayer is a witness to the realization we are inadequate. We do not have the resources of our own. We are helpless before God. And that is expressed in our prayer, totally dependent upon God. But also, it's an affirmation of our faith. And though we know our own helplessness, there's that assurance, God is able, nothing is too hard for Him. And He delights to hear the cry of those who trust Him, just like a father answers the cry of a child. And those disciples learned about prayer. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see how often prayer is mentioned there. It seems like the early church was bathed in the practice of prayer. In the same way, Jesus was teaching them the Scripture, that this is the Word of God. That's what He called it. That this would be the source of their teaching. There are about 160 references in the four Gospels of Jesus using in some way the Old Testament Scriptures. And those disciples learned that this book was to be their text. Here was a place they could turn as the objective authority for our faith. And when you read through the book of Acts and see those sermons that the apostles and others preached, it seems like they got a pretty good understanding of the Scripture. And yet, in the Gospels, there is no specific lesson on how to study the Bible. Now, we have classes like that in seminary, just like we have classes in witnessing. But Jesus was demonstrating it so consistently and faithfully, they, learn, they learned by observation what it meant to pray, to study the Bible. The two go together. Often we begin in prayer with some reference to the Scripture because it's as if God is speaking to us now and we listen and we seek to apply what is said to our own life and then we respond in prayer. But the two actually flow together. I've learned through the years that when a student comes to me and wants some counsel, often they have confusion in their life about what decision to make and sometimes they're already overwhelmed with a sense of failure. And so I will ask the question, tell me, how are you coming along in your personal prayer time? 
How's your prayer life? Because if they're keeping up this practice on a regular basis, the chances are they're doing well on down the line. But if they are defeated here in their daily prayer life, I call it the quiet time, I suspect they're open to all kinds of difficulties as they confront new challenges through the day. Prayer, you see, is going to be the engine that helps us take what God promises in His Word and put it into practice. And when we think of Scripture, as so often uh, I've seen Charlie Riggs do in our Christian life and training courses in our Billy Graham schools, he uses the hand illustration. You've probably seen it. The little finger is uh, hearing the Word like going to church listening to the sermon. The next finger is, is uh, uh, reading the Word, where you have a chance to look at the Bible and read the Bible every day. The next finger would represent uh, studying the Word, uh, which takes a little more work. Being a workman, not ashamed, requires effort. The next finger is to memorize the Word, the index finger, writing it now upon your heart. And that's another thing I usually try to encourage my students to do, to read, to memorize a verse of Scripture each week. And then, of course, the thumb is to use the Word. That's the power. Uh, that's the strength. But the Word becomes a part of our life. And these are the kind of things that you do together when you're with someone. You can share some recent answer to prayer, or you can share some burden that's come into your life. In the same way, you're sharing how you witness, often in just a natural experience. Just take as an example an incident that's recorded in the life of Jesus over in the 19th chapter of Luke. It's in his last year of active ministry. He's on his way now uh, to Jerusalem, and he passes through Jericho. It was sort of a resort city. Tree was lined with, the street was lined with trees. And the word had preceded him, and so we're told many people had turned out uh, to watch Jesus pass by. And among them was a little man called Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector in the city. I suspect he had been in the office that day when someone dropped in and told him about the visitor who was coming. And he had heard about Jesus before, but he had dismissed it. He was a businessman. He didn't have much time to deal with religious matters. He probably thought that the reports of his miracles were exaggerated. But what must have appealed to him more than these mighty works was the rumor that Jesus was a friend even to the publicans. It was said one of his own disciples was a former tax collector. They called him Matthew by name. 
And it was also said that Jesus, on his own authority, forgave people their sin. Now, Zacchaeus may not have been a, a religious man, but you've got to give him credit for intelligence. And as any person would conclude who heard these reports of Jesus, either our Lord was insane, or he was a deceiver, or he was God. There are no other options. And being a reasonable man, uh, Zacchaeus, he thought, here's my chance to check this out, to see this man for myself. So I imagine he dismissed that guard that was with him that day, told him, go on home, they're going to close up early. Sealed fast the, the safe, walked out of the office, bolting the door behind him, and then began to push his way through the crowd that was now assembled along the dusty thoroughfare. And the people turned to see who it was, pushing his way to the front. And they saw this little man, no longer with a Roman soldier beside him. They saw him for what he was, a despised tax collector, a man who was in collaboration with their oppressors who by a bribe probably had even gotten his job collecting taxes. Oh, he was hated by the people. And seeing who he was no longer with, with a Roman guard, they closed their ranks and they began to shove and push him until I can see him there on the fringe of the crowd all alone. Can you see him there? Have you ever been in a crowd and felt alone? But as he reflected upon what he had heard, he wasn't in content to let the opportunity pass. He glanced out of his eye and could see there, not far away, this large tree right next to the road. He darted up that side street through that alley and then he ran and jumped up into the tree and climbed up on that branch overhanging the dusty thoroughfare. And as he pushed aside the leaves, he strained to look in the distance. And it was then he first saw his Lord. I expect his first impression was one of surprise. Because as the prophet had said long before, Jesus had no beauty that he would be desired of men he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But as he drew nearer and Zacchaeus could look into his face, he saw something in Jesus that he had never seen before. It was strange. He couldn't explain it. But it seemed that some great power just emanated from Christ and reached out and embraced that whole multitude of people. Oh, how his heart must have begun to beat faster. How he follows every glance Jesus makes, for soon he will have passed this way. Oh, how he would learn to know more. And Jesus is now drawing beneath the tree when suddenly he stops. And he looks up, and he speaks. Zacchaeus, come on down, because today 
I must stay in your house. Can you imagine how Zacchaeus felt? How would you have felt if you had been in his place that day and you would look down into the face of Jesus Christ and you knew he was talking to you? No doubt about it. Among all the people in Jericho, you are the one now that has an audience with the king. And he's thinking to himself, he is not turned away by what people have been saying about me. Surely he must know that I'm despised. Surely he realizes I'm a hated tax collector and that I really don't have any friends in this city. But I believe that Jesus understands. Jesus knows me. He calls me by my name. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to explain your situation to Jesus. He already knows who you are. He knows all about it. He reads every thought in your mind. He can call every hair on your head by number. He understands you. Do you see Zacchaeus? I imagine that branch upon which he hangs is beginning to quiver. And it's not just the gentle breeze that's blowing. How would you have felt if you had been in his place that day and you had looked into the face of the Son of God? And he's talking to you. Among all the people that are there, you are the one that has an audience with the king. And Zacchaeus is thinking to himself, he not only knows me, but he, he's inviting himself to go home with me. It's, it's almost unbelievable. In spite of what he knows about me, in spite of what people must say about me, he wants to go home and be my guest. Why? I believe Jesus wants to be with me. Oh, that's a wonderful realization. In spite of what is known about you, to realize that Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants to go home with you. I remember as a boy, I had a dog. I got him when he was just a puppy. And I taught him whenever he heard my whistle, he was to come home. And I can remember this afternoon just like it was yesterday. I'd go out there in the front yard. I'd look around and not see my dog. So I'd just whistle. And wherever my dog was, his ears would perk up. He would stop. And then he'd come running home. When he heard that whistle, he knew his master wanted him and knew I'd be waiting for him there in the front yard. You know, I've thought it's going to be like that one of these days with me. I don't know when, but I can imagine my Lord looking down from heaven and maybe turn into one of the angels and say, now there's Mr. Coleman. He's made more than his share of blunders, but he still loves me. I believe it's time to call him home.
and he's going to call my name. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop. I'm going to look up. And I'm going home. Because Jesus wants me. There just before he was taken away and tried and later crucified on that very night, he told the disciples, they need not fear that he was going away. They need not be troubled because he said, where I'm going in my father's house, there are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you also can be. And you can be sure of this. If I go away, I will come again so that where I am, you can be also. Isn't it wonderful? You're wanted. Do you see Zacchaeus up in that sycamore tree? It's a wonder he didn't fall right out. How would you have felt if you had been in his place that day and you had looked into the face of the Son of Almighty God? And he was talking to you. You're the one now that has an audience with the king. And Zacchaeus is thinking to himself, he not only knows me and wants me, he's not ashamed for everybody in town to know that he's my personal friend. Why? I believe Jesus loves me. Do you remember when that message came home to you? When it was clear to you that God loved you and that Jesus came in that love and took your place at Calvary so that you might know His forgiveness and life eternal. Don't ever forget that love that gripped you then. Because there are many people, some that you might know personally, who may live right around you, that have no idea that they're loved, least of all by God. Love, as I've said, is the constraining force. And I'm glad to say before that account is closed there in the Gospel of Luke. We're told Zacchaeus right there made up his mind and he came down and received Christ joyfully right on that street corner. Well, I expect there were some in the crowd that began to jeer and make fun of him. I can hear them whisper why this old, this old traitor to his country has suddenly got religion. They laughed him to scorn. But I don't think it made any difference to Zacchaeus what the people said. Because for the first time in his life, he had met someone who truly loved him. And he was going home a new man. Well, there are a lot of things that hadn't been covered yet. As is always the case, that's why follow-up is so crucial. But they could talk about some of those things when they got back to the house. 
It was there that Jesus could explain some of these things. There was restitution that had to be made. Zacchaeus was more than willing to make things right. And he needed to be encouraged. As Jesus said, you too are a child of Abraham. You are a man of faith. But he also wanted him to know really what Jesus had come into the world to do. Just like he wants those disciples to learn. The Son of Man, he said, has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. Those disciples needed to hear that again. It had been expressed in other ways before this, but again and again he's amplifying that objective, that reason for his being on earth. And he wants them to see a reason that they too can live on this earth with a mission, with a purpose. Yes, they had a lot of things to talk over. They could do that more back at the house. But he was giving these disciples a living demonstration of evangelism. Not in theory, not in a book. They had seen it lived out before them that very day. It's the way Jesus is teaching all the way through. And of course, what is also obvious to us now, though the disciples at the time may not have put it all together until a little later, but they were seeing, lived out, the lifestyle of the Great Commission. So that when later he told them to go and make disciples of the nations, they could comprehend what he meant. Because they had been discipled. That's the way we learn, most naturally. Yes, we can talk about it. We can lecture about it as I am here. We can read it in books. But the way that most of us really are convinced is when we see it lived out before our eyes. And that's the way you can teach. That's the way the people in your house, the people that you work beside, will learn what it means. You model the lesson. And they will see your priorities and values lived out. It may take a little while, but over time they will surface and they will begin to be curious because your very presence has created a mystery. And it leads them to inquire, why is it you're like this? It makes them want to know the answer. And then it's when you can share the inner life of your soul. You can give your experience. You can bring them to understand a recent answer to prayer. You can share with them a great burden on your heart that has been with you for a long time. And it may involve your own shortcomings and failures. You know, 
here's where, too, we have to be at a demonstration. I remember when my oldest daughter, during her teen years, was going through a period of rebellion. I don't know why it was the oldest daughter. The other two kids never seemed to have to face this issue. But it was a real struggle with Alethea, who had been brought up in the church and outwardly seemed to do as well as any of the other young people, probably even better. But mom and dad knew she wasn't living up to her profession and had, with her own rebellion, drifted away from the Lord. And we tried to talk to her about it, but it didn't seem that she could really comprehend. She was more interested now in what other people were thinking and wanted to be more accepted by the crowd. So about all we knew to do was to pray and to remember that love never fails. But I hadn't shared this great burden with the boys that I would meet with on Tuesday mornings in my office. But I resolved that I was going to have to let them know what we were going through. I remember it because it was a clear decision I had made the night before. And the next morning when I went to the office to meet with the boys, I told them about my daughter. And we wept together. You could have taken a towel and wiped the tears off the floor. But you know, after that, I think we were closer than we ever were before. Almost every day I can remember one of the boys coming by and say, Dr. Coleman, I'm praying for you and your daughter. One of them may stop in and say, how is your daughter today? I wish I could say that things cleared up overnight. We struggled through that for several years. I'm glad that later she came through and she and her husband just retired as pastor, her husband, and she was the song leader of this little Presbyterian church way out in the plains of West Texas. But it made me realize we've got to be honest with people and that even our failures and shortcomings can become means of teaching. And if there's a burden that you're bearing that seems more than you can handle, I hope you have someone else you can share it with, hopefully your wife or your husband or maybe other members of the family or a close friend that you're with who also bears these burdens with you. If you're a pastor, you've got to have someone like this because the load is too heavy to carry alone. But the early church would teach us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Demonstration. No, you don't have to be perfect to make disciples, but I think you have to be honest and as far as possible transparent and learn together 
that we're in this for the long haul. We'll not give up. We'll not turn back. And when we reach a place where we don't seem to comprehend why, we'll share our burden and we'll trust God to lead us through. Jesus was continually showing the disciples how to minister. And he was teaching them as he would explain why he would have to die himself as he tried again and again to open up the reason he was being rejected and how the gospel was a dividing message and how it would separate truth from falsehood and how the light would always be shunned by darkness. He was teaching these people that it's not going to be easy. But the cross is a hard way to travel, but a blessed way. Because you always have your eye on the goal that seems closer every day. You've gone out with God and you're moving increasingly nearer that city that has foundations. And the joy that is beyond teaches you the meaning of obedience. Oh, let them see your joy, even in the midst of sorrow, and show those people close to you how they too can bear their burdens and how finally we're going to make it through to the city and fulfill that reason for our existence when God made us to know Him, to love Him, and to rejoice in Him forever. What a way to live. It's the lifestyle of the Great Commission.